Uh, Proverbs 10, continuing uh, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Well, I've said this before in our earlier studies, and I'll repeat it again, that all that you've got here in Proverbs is true and is correct. It was given by God. And yet it is my suggestion that you can trace in so many of these Proverbs Solomon's personal self-justification. He talks an awful lot about wisdom and the blessedness of the man who chooses wisdom. Well, who was the one who chose wisdom? It was Solomon. God gave him a choice. What do you want from me? You're a new king. And he said, I want wisdom. And God said, well done. Uh, That's really pleasing to me. I'll give you wisdom. And I'll give you things that you didn't ask for. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you long life. And I'll give you fame. These are all gifts from me that I'm just going to give you, because I was really pleased that you wanted wisdom. And yet, all through the Proverbs, as I say, although it's all true as far as it goes, I do perceive Solomon justifying himself. He has an awful lot to say about those three things, wealth, fame, and long life. And he seems to be saying that you get those three things by... Uh, being smart and by being hard working and he keeps moaning about lazy people say in verse 4 he becomes poor that deals with a slack hand but the hand of the hard worker makes him rich no that is not the case because it was God who gave Solomon his riches and yet Solomon sort of says all the way through the Proverbs no it's because of hard work and Solomon, I think, was by, by personality a worker. He was not a slacker, he was not lazy. And he therefore justifies himself when he's saying things like that. And this is the whole problem with us who, quote, have the truth. It is true that God has given us uh, a large amount of truth, if you like, wisdom, which other people don't have. The distinctive doctrines that we understand that uh, man is mortal, no immortal soul, that there's no Satan out there with the horns and dragon uh, dragon tail on him, uh, etc. and so forth. Uh, God's not a trinity, etc. These are all truths that God has given to us, but simply holding them of themselves will not thereby justify us. And I I fear that many of us are ultimately making the same mess of our lives that Solomon did, thinking that I have got all this wisdom, and therefore I am thereby justified, when personal spirituality is of the essence. And that, of course, is what Solomon didn't have. And although, as he says in Ecclesiastes, my wisdom remained with me, The biblical comment is that in his old age, his heart turned away from God. So you can keep the uh, the doctrinal truths all you like, and yet your heart can turn away. And I think, again, that the Lord Jesus had this danger in mind in the parable of the, the man who had the one talent, who hid it, kept it in the earth, wrapped it in a napkin, kept it very nicely and when the Lord came back he said here you are I kept what you gave me and Jesus says no you're going to be condemned which seems pretty tough but the whole point was that you've got to do something with it and interestingly enough the words that are used there in that parable for keeping as in I kept it I preserved it 
uh, the, the, the talent. These are the very same words that are used later on in the pastoral letters about keeping the faith. It's as if Jesus really did have this in mind, uh, that this man was the type who thought, look, I have preserved a statement of faith. I have preserved the truths that were given to me, and therefore, well, where's my place in the kingdom? No, you're out. And uh, yeah, the parable appears to be unreasonable, and that's how I think the initial hearers of it would have uh, taken it, that what, you fire the guy because he, well, he kept what you gave him. We expect the Lord to say, well, you're fired because I gave you some money to keep, but you went and spent it on yourself. The man doesn't do that. He simply doesn't do anything with it. And that's the reason for being fired. You know, he even wraps it in a napkin, uh, which he should have used, I guess, for wiping the uh, sweat off his, um, off his face as he worked. And I think that Solomon, then, is the Old Testament example of this, that he has all this wisdom, and yet he leaves it at that. And he does not, apparently, understand the grace of God in giving him things his long life, his fame, his wealth, he clearly assumed came from his own hard work. And that, again, is something that uh, we can take, take to heart, because all that you have, whatever wealth you have, whatever respect you have, whatever long life you have, is a pure gift. Because the battle is not to the strong, and the race is not to the swift because God's grace overarches all that. You know, there are highly capable, highly hard-working people who never get anywhere far in life because of factors beyond their control. There, there may be a family situation that uh, stops them, a partner or kids or whatever that simply stop them. There are other people of only average ability and average uh, hard work or diligence who get up to be the president of America. I'm thinking about George Bush. Nothing against the guy, but, you know, not that smart a fellow, average intelligence. But, you know, he ended up in a very powerful uh, situation. And, as I say, the battle is not to the strong. Life is not really uh, a career open to talent, because there is this other element there. Well, Solomon seems to be saying that if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. And if you're rich, it's because you're smart and you work hard. When God had said to him right at the start, Solomon, I'm going to give you wealth and fame, but that is a gift from me. And he often talks about how, verse 8, the wise in heart receive commandments. As if he's saying that um, if you're wise, then you are open to receiving God's word. Well, that is not the case, because Solomon was totally disobedient to commandments from God, particularly about, um, uh, about marriage, uh, with unbelievers, etc., etc., and yet he had this wisdom. So he just assumed that possessing wisdom was the same as receiving God's word on a personal level. In verse 13, he says, a rod is for the back of him that lacks understanding or lacks wisdom. And he talks about, he uses that uh, phrase a number of times, that a rod should be for the unwise. Several times in Proverbs he says that. 
You might like to scoop in your margin there by verse 13, by the word rod, 2 Samuel 7.14. 2 Samuel 7.14. Because there we have the promise to David where God says, you're going to have a son, and if he sins, then I will chastise him with the rod of the children of men. So all the promises about Solomon were totally conditional. But Solomon seems to have thought that because I've got wisdom, they're not conditional. And it was because he thought that he was unconditionally going to be the Messiah and the, uh, the chosen son of God and son of David, that because of that, he basically thought, I cannot sin. Which is why, as we uh, observed earlier, when we looked at chapter 2, he basically says, if you've got wisdom, then you will not be led astray by the Gentile woman. So he marries you know, up to a thousand Gentile women, and they do lead him astray. Uh, but why did he do that? Because he thought, well, I've got wisdom, and therefore they will not lead me astray. But the academic possession of wisdom did not... Uh, stop him going astray they did turn his heart away and so he says here that the rod is only for the back of him who lacks wisdom the implication is if you've got wisdom then this threat about being chastised with the rod of men will not come upon you and he was wrong and so the whole idea of conditionality of our salvation needs to be I think remembered because on one hand we should be 100% certain that by God's grace I shall be in God's kingdom but on the other hand there should always be that sense of the future we may miss we should be very aware that I am but flesh and although we can be confident that if the Lord comes at this moment by his grace I shall be saved who knows about tomorrow we can go astray so easily and he very much has this idea that he is the son of David. And when you look at um, the, the phrase that he uses, my father David, he uses this a few hundred times. Just look at it in a concordance if you doubt that. It's absolutely obscene the number of times he uses this phrase, my father David. This, that and the other of my father David. And I would go so far as to say that his spirituality, or his apparent spirituality, was little more than a living out of parental expectation. So he says in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 10, A wise son makes a glad father. And there he was the son of David who had chosen wisdom. And you therefore, I think, are driven to the conclusion that he chose wisdom because he wanted to do what his father would have been happy with. And, of course, when his father died, and uh, as the effect of his parent, of David being his parent, uh, I guess, receded over the years, Solomon really just had nobody at home, spiritually. There was just nothing there. His whole spirituality was a living out of parental expectation. And all this talk about the wise son pleases his father, well, yes, Solomon, that is uh, true, uh, but when it comes to you, Solomon, it seems that you chose wisdom just to please your father. 
and all the time you were thinking, my dad would be so happy if I did this, or he would so, be so happy if I built a temple, he was so into building a temple, uh, and so forth. It's been my observation in my own circle of contact and the community that I grew up in that there's often a, a middle age crisis in spiritual terms in people who grew up as uh, believers. Their parents die when they're in middle age and they lose their faith. Well, if they don't lose their faith visibly in saying in so many words, you know what, I don't believe it, um, they basically drift away. As far as one can see, their faith plays a very small part in their lives. This is the danger of generation after generation of believers. Now, of course, it's quite right that we should raise our kids uh, believing, but on the other hand, there is this huge problem of living out parental expectation. And I think that that is why often in the lives of such people, who often uh, in physical terms have had a, a pretty... Uh, a pretty blessed childhood and a pretty safe kind of background, God very often brings all kinds of very intense problems into their lives. Maybe hidden from public view, but he often works, I notice, very intensely with those people in order to bring them to a genuine faith for themselves. Because of course doesn't, God doesn't want people just uh, living out parental expectation. He wants people to have a genuine and full relationship with him in their own right. And so he works, I think, to take away all the crutches that people have leaned on. And as I say, I think it is especially so in the lives of those who were schooled into Christianity. In the lives of those who came from atheism or Islam or, or whatever uh, to, to Christ, I see that God works somewhat differently. I mean, I'm only talking as an observer. Uh, what I'm saying is that the issue of having been raised by believing parents uh, this is an issue that if that applies to you, you've got to take on board. And if you weren't raised in that background, I'm sure that when you've entered into the ecclesia, into church life, you will have uh, noticed that they, that is those who were schooled into Christ, as it were, from their, from their childhood, who uh, you know, knew that Mary was a virgin well before they knew what a virgin was, uh, that those people are a bit different and that God works with them in a somewhat different way. If you don't perceive that, well, don't think that they are having a, a charmed life. They're probably going through all manner of really major stuff that God has given them because he loves them and he wants them to not go the way of Solomon, but to come to him for himself. Now, Another thing that you notice in Proverbs is that he keeps glorifying wealth. Verse 15 is, as I see it there, and the, certainly in, in the, the older versions, an unashamed justification of wealth. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. He's really saying that uh, wealth is a great thing. And yet there's a lot of Bible teaching and practical experience of where wealth is not a great thing. And Solomon's own life is an example of that, that he didn't find uh, happiness and relationship with God through his wealth. But God gave him that wealth. And he assumes that, because, you know, when he says, give me wisdom, God says, okay, well done, you can have wisdom and I'll give, give you wealth as well. 
Um, and he assumes all the way through that wealth is a result of hard work. And, you know, it isn't like that. As I say, the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong. And people are so often wealthy, not actually because of their own particular acumen nor hard work, but it's just the way that, under God's hand, life kind of fell out for them. He talks so often about the contrast between the, the wise and the foolish. The verse 23 is an example. It is sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding has wisdom. So many verses in the Proverbs, you've got these words wise and foolish, or fool and wisdom, uh, put together in, in contrast. And he seems to be saying that he, as the one who has wisdom, who had clearly been given it by God and people from all over the world uh, came to pay tribute to his wisdom, uh, that therefore he is okay and everyone other than him is an idiot, is stupid, is foolish, is lazy, is sluggard and the rest of it. Um, you see that um, again in 26, so is the sluggard, so is the lazy person, etc., uh, etc., and he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand that God gives people wealth. He gives people reputation, often when they don't deserve it. And the other way around as well. He gives people infamy and poverty at times when, you know, they, humanly speaking, don't deserve it. But that is how God gave it. That's how it worked out. Now, this opposition between wise and foolish is, of course, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And yet, I think Jesus had reflected upon Solomon, and as I've said earlier uh, in these talks, I think there's a number of allusions that Jesus makes to Solomon, uh, at putting him in a rather negative light. Now, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, what was the difference? Was it that the wise were harder working and the foolish were simply lazy? No. The difference was that the wise virgins recognized that they might well go to sleep in waiting for Jesus and their oil might very well run out. So, according to Jesus, the difference between wise and foolish is that the wise are not harder working because they also go to sleep. It's simply that they are more humble, and the true wisdom is to recognize your likely fallibility and the likelihood of your human failure, and to make allowance for that. That's why they took extra oil, because they recognized that they might need it, that they might lose their oil that they, they initially had. And the foolish virgins assumed that such failure, such loss of oil, such loss of the spirit, loss of spirituality was absolutely impossible for them. And that they were definitely going to be uh, there to meet, to, to meet their Lord. So Jesus, I think, turns around Solomon's understanding of wise and foolish. Where, as I say, he seems to say, the wise uh, are prosperous because they're hardworking, etc. The fools are just stupid and idiotic, that's why they're poor and got all sorts of problems and die young. But that, that's just not the case. Now, moving on finally to 24, I do like this. The fear of the wicked shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Um, this is an example of where... You know, Solomon does say under inspiration a lot of things that are so true. The contrast is between the fear of the wicked and the desire of the righteous. 
this is how we view the future. For those who do not believe, they have fear. But for the righteous, they, their future is made up of a strong desire, that is, for God's kingdom and for salvation. And as we get older, I think that all the unbeliever is left with is fear. Fear of the process of their death. Fear of the unknown beyond death. The fear of how what they've built up in this life is going to be squandered by others, be it materially or otherwise. Fear of how their kids are going to turn out, uh, or grandkids or whatever. Whereas for the believer, our perception of the future then is not based around fear, but desire. And looking forward with joy to the future. And so... I mean, verse 28, the hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked just is to perish. So then, if we are convinced that by God's grace I look forward to salvation in God's kingdom, if the gospel for us is indeed good news, then that shapes our perception of the future. It's why, although humanly we may fear the process of death, we look forward with desire. And therefore, verse 25, the righteous has an everlasting foundation. What we're building in this life spiritually shall last eternally. Because in a sense, who we are now, in essence, is who we shall eternally be. Because the Bible teaches personal salvation. That you shall be saved. That I shall be saved. That I and you, as a sum of all our personality, all our experience, our history, etc., we shall rise again, and we shall be given a new body which is appropriate to you, as you uniquely are, that we personally shall be saved. It's not that we shall go on as some uh, intangible ether, as an immortal soul or whatever, but the Bible teaches bodily resurrection and personal salvation. And that's why what we're building up in this life, through living the life of true wisdom, is actually going to last eternally. And therefore, all that we're doing in this world, both in our own development, uh, personal development, and for others spiritually, shall last eternally, forever and ever and ever. What we're doing now is an eternal foundation.